0: This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're headed toward what we're told is the impolite discussion zone this week, as we take up both religion and politics. The surprising election results from Venezuela and the Feast of San Lazaro in Cuba. But first, Natalie Odinger is here with the details of those Venezuelan elections and the rest of our weekly review of news from around Latin America.
1: Opposition groups in Venezuela celebrated this week after a landslide victory in congressional elections. The opposition will hold a supermajority in Congress and will likely challenge President Nicolas Maduro's policies. This is the first time since the current Venezuelan constitution was enacted in 1999 that the opposition has had this much power in Venezuela's Congress. David Smilde of Tulane University and the Washington Office on Latin America analyzed the election results.
2: Of course, this is a, this is a huge result for the opposition, and I think it, it marks a real turning point. This election was fundamentally about the economy, was fundamentally about issues of governance. No, it's, uh, the, situ- the economic situation is, is providing sort of a daily drama for for almost everybody here in Venezuela, and that's what pe- that's what has people really exhausted, and tired, and hoping for a change.
1: The Venezuelan government says inflation is running at 100 percent, and some experts say it is even higher. We'll hear more from David Smilde about the Venezuelan elections later on this program. <laughs> Argentina inaugurated Mauricio Macri as its new president this week, but not without some controversy. Outgoing President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner refused to attend the inauguration ceremonies. Fernandez said Macri should have received the presidential sash before the Argentine Congress, as she did. But Macri opted for a more traditional ceremony at the presidential palace, the Casa Rosada, after a swearing-in before Congress. Fernandez held a massive rally on her last night in office, with thousands cheering her on, urging her to run for president again in four years. Fernandez used the rally to criticize Macri. For his part, Macri also took a swipe at Fernandez, asking the Argentine Supreme Court to officially shorten her term in office by 12 hours so she would end her presidency at midnight. (laughs) The president of Costa Rica is assuring Cuban refugees in his country that they can stay, and he continues to look for solutions as the refugees want to journey northward to the United States. The number of refugees stuck on the Costa Rican border with Nicaragua has more than doubled in the past few weeks, with now 5,000 staying in makeshift encampments. Nicaragua closed its borders to the refugees and won't let them cross into its territory. This week, President Luis Guillermo Solis of Costa Rica said he had failed in his efforts to get Guatemala or Belize to accept the refugees. Brazilian researchers say they've discovered a bug so creepy they had to name it after a character from the Lord of the Rings series. The insect is a type of harvestman, something most people think of as spiders, like a daddy long legs, but they're only related to spiders. This harvestman is bright yellow with long legs and is blind, only living in the caves in the Brazilian state of Miras Gerais. Researchers named it the Smeagol. Those familiar with the Tolkien books and movies will know that is the name of the character who finds an evil ring, frequents caves, and becomes the scary character known as Gollum. Researchers say this Smeagol is already a threatened species, and more work should be done to set aside some of these caves as protected areas. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger.
0: Thanks, Natalie. Cuba is known as perhaps the least religious country in all of Latin America these days, But one religious feast does seem to motivate many on the island. That's the Feast of San Lazaro, which is on the calendar for the week ahead on December the 17th. Although the religious celebration has Christian roots, these days it's primarily for practitioners of Santeria, called Santeros. We asked Michael Atwood Mason about this religious day. He's the director of the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage, and he's the author of Living Santeria, rituals and experiences, and Afro-Cuban religion. We reached him via Skype from Washington, D.C.
3: I would say that the Feast of St. Lazarus is, in fact, the most important feast day in Cuba. Many people, laity and clergy alike, will will make clear that St. Lazarus is the most popular saint in Cuba, along with uh, St. Barbara and Our Lady of Charity, who is officially the patron saint of the island. I think the popularity comes from a whole number of things. Uh, first of all, the Christian tradition brings uh, a, a, a complicated set of uh, stories and images related to Saint Lazarus. The official Saint Lazarus was a bishop, uh, but in the popular imagination, Saint Lazarus uh, is is the both the Lazarus of the Bible, who is Jesus' cousin, and also the Lazarus of the parable about the rich man and the poor man and the ability of the poor man to make it into heaven when the rich man cannot. Um, because Cubans historically struggled consistently with issues of poverty, on a for many people, on an annual cyclical basis because of the harvest, the sugar harvest, um, you really have a, a kind of an image of the divine in its most abject form, in its most downtrodden form. The popular image of St. Lazarus, he has open sores on his legs, he's walking on crutches, and he's accompanied by dogs who are um, literally cleaning his wounds as he walks. It's an incredible image of humility. I think that is a significant part of why this is so popular, because on one level this is a reality for all human beings. And, and because it ties so directly to the, the history of the island, it's really meaningful for people. I, there's also a long tradition of St. Lazarus being considered miraculous. So many people have got stories in their families or in their own life experience of going to St. Lazarus for some kind of healing when things were, were really at their worst. And so there's a there's a lived experience of this being a, a face of the divine that that responds, that comes through, and, and delivers people in a way that's really really wonderful. I should say that there's a, also a, a very popular festival um, that surrounds this and and was allowed has been allowed really consistently throughout the revolution. And hundreds of thousands of people walk from all over the island, but mostly from Havana out um, to the town of Rincon, just south uh, of the city, it's about 38 uh, kilometers from, from the sea, people walk uh, on, usually on December 16th and, and wait for the arrival of December 17th, St. Lazarus's feast day, at this church, which is also um, a hospital for lepers people make this pilgrimage as a promise often to they say that if if saint lazarus heals them they will uh, make the pilgrimage or um or if saint lazarus heals their child they'll take their child for seven years uh, so again there's a there's a major ritual marking of this event and uh, people hundreds and thousands of people have been involved in that. And so it, it really resonates in a, in a very deep way uh, with Cubans of all kinds of different backgrounds. So this this theme of, of healing, suffering and, and sickness, and then healing, on the other hand, is a major part of what makes St. Lazarus really stand out for Cubans.
0: But this is really a, um, a feast day... Not just for those who are practitioners of Santeria, Santeros, um, but for many people on the island. But why did those who are practitioners of Santeria adopt this? You've you've described a history that is really uh, rich in in the Christian heritage.
3: Right. So I've been talking about the Christian heritage. Really, the the Afro Cuban heritage uh, dovetails really nicely with that, and and that is the case with most of these. Uh, Adoptions that the Afro Cuban community made at some point, beginning probably in the early 1800s and being fairly stable by the early 1900s, where uh, a Catholic saint is strongly associated with a specific deity from the Afro Cuban pantheon. So, in the case of Saint Lazarus, uh, the crutches, the abject quality, the sickness is completely consonant with the identity of Babalu Aye, uh, who is, in Nigeria, a, a god of infectious disease and healing. And so you get this very natural shared uh, kind of um, iconography that 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 resonate uh, across the traditions and allows them to meld in a very comfortable way. and most people are, uh, most people are not too preoccupied about who they're actually addressing in the divine world. They, they just, they come to the divine world because, um, th- they have faith or they have some kind of need and they think the spirits are going to help them resolve whatever issues they're dealing with. So, uh, regular folks don't, argue too much about whether they're talking to St. Lazarus or whether they're talking to Babalu Aye. Um and, and in fact Babalu Aye is complicated enough and rich enough um, within Santaria to, to have actually even more significant and subtle variations for people who are in the know. But that that engagement around healing uh, and and deliverance from some kind of serious illness is a very is a very natural point of connection between St. Lazarus and Babalu Aye. I think it's also really interesting and and important to think about the fact that Babalu Aye, the name, is actually a, uh, it's an epitaph that's used because his actual name is thought to invoke him so powerfully that to say it would actually bring epidemics upon people, and obviously no one wants illness. but. Babalu Aye can be translated comfortably as Father Lord of the Earth or Father Lord of the World. And that, that connection to the Earth, again, is this very humble but also omnipresent aspect of life and connects, I think, in really meaningful ways to the body. And it's important to note here that in Afro-Cuban tradition, almost without fail, people are taught from the very earliest involvement, whether they come in as children or whether they come in in their 80s, one of the first things that they're taught is that every time you pray, you have to ask for health, that health is the most important thing. And so, again, this is the space, uh, the domain, if you will, that, that Babalu Aye takes responsibility for. And it's it's tremendously idiosyncratic or individualized is maybe a better word. It's individualized in that we know in Western medicine, if if I'm sick, a doctor might give me medicine that they gave five other people, and it might have worked for the five other people, and we might have the same illness, but it might not work for me. Uh, And so there have to be adjustments made. Well, Afro-Cuban practitioners treat Babalu Ayé in very much the same way, and so there is remarkable individualization of the way in which he, his his sacred objects are are created and, to a lesser extent, um, honored and, and maintained uh, on on altars in people's houses across the island. Um, one of his big areas of responsibility is um, is secrecy. So th- there are traditions that um, seal the vessels that hold his sacred objects so that the people, the elders who actually consecrate those objects, put things in that no one else knows about and then they're sealed in. And that secrecy is never violated. At, at the same time, there are stories about Babalu Aye traveling and sitting down on a rock and suddenly being able to divine and and to prophesy so that the secrecy of of these ritual vessels, which are sealed and and which hide the the medicine that is individually uh, confected for a particular person is juxtaposed in a really lovely way with revelation and the ability to prophesy. That that's another one of the interesting dynamics within the world of IA.
0: As you know, recently we were in Cuba, and during that trip we had someone mention to us that one of the miracles of San Lazaro was the fact that the announcement of the opening between Cuba and the United States, the new diplomatic opening, was made on that particular day. Um, do you put any um, significance into that?
3: Many of the people that I know in Cuba have pointed out to me that it happened on St. Lazarus's feast day. And for all the people who've mentioned it to me, they underscore that St. Lazarus is miraculous. And this seems like a miracle in a certain way, Uh, an event that no one could have predicted, that no one thought was coming soon, uh, that no one had imagined. And, And yet here it is. So... In my mind, it, it, it does. People in Cuba do certainly see it that way and see it as a manifestation of Saint Lazarus, I mean. And I think it's also important to understand that it's a great example of the way in which the deities uh, in Santeria really resonate and, and people use them to make sense of the world, right? It, it they're, They are taking this this information and mapping it onto their experience and and that's that's fascinating and uh it it creates a a really rich textured sense of meaning in people's lives
0: thanks for those insights our guest today on latin pulse michael atwood mason the director of the smithsonian center for folk life and cultural heritage the author of living santeria rituals, and experiences in Afro-Cuban religion. Join us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thank you very much.
3: It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Mason is also the author of the blog, Baba Babalu, and Smithsonian.com will soon feature one of his articles on the Feast of San Lazaro. Coming up, reaction from Caracas about Venezuela's congressional changes. Stay with us. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, Nearly 2 million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. And now, a bit of a first and an experiment for our program. This week, in the wake of the congressional elections in Venezuela, this program had access to a press conference conducted via long-distance line with David Smilde in Caracas. Smilde is with Tulane University, and he's the author of the Venezuela Human Rights and Politics blog for the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA. What follows are excerpts from that press conference, including the voices of various reporters from news organizations interested in the election results.
2: My biggest takeaway uh, just to start with is, is that uh, it's sort of uh, some praise and admiration for first Venezuelan people who who went massively. I haven't actually seen the participation numbers, but I'm sure they're, they're above 70 percent, probably between 70 and 75 percent. Who went to, to the polls despite a lot of distrust of the National Electoral Council, despite the fact that, that the majority think the vote is not secret? They went to the polls massively and and they expressed their uh, desires. The uh, and also the government, you no, know, the government and Chavismo who who have recognized the results uh, last night. They they recognized a, a really stinging defeat. You know, what we I think that's something that's important. If you, if you think back to the past year, how many How many people have said that this election is not going to happen? How many people have said the results are cooked? How many people have said that, um, you know, the uh, uh, the government wasn't going to recognize? And here in the end, we do have an actual Democratic election with some blemishes, which I'd be happy to talk about uh, uh, further. The uh, opposition, I think, I'm I'm hoping they read this correctly. And... uh, Uh, realize that this was not actually a vote about political prisoners. This is a vote about economic change and said hopefully they will, uh, put together some, uh, some ideas and, and some, some projects that could provide some relief for people and and there's solutions to their everyday problems. The, uh, I think it's going to be really easy, uh, for them to get sidetracked and, and just focus on the political struggle. I think the government as well, you know, I think. Hopefully they will reassess and think about this think about um, what uh, you know what this means and 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 reassess and think you know they really have to focus on, on improving some of these things I should say that my, my uh... speech last night you know I did not think was a positive uh, direction on this town I thought you know it, it stayed within the terms the discourse of the economic war and uh, you know uh, uh, Portrayed this as a victory for savage capitalism and said this is the time to work even harder for socialism. No, that's not the type of reorientation that I think this election, a good reading of this election, should lead to. I think, you know, uh, of course, that's his first reaction and that's um, bravado. So we don't really, we won't really know what these things will happen, uh, uh, you know, what kind of reading the actors are going to give until they start actually acting because their discourse is, is one thing and what they actually do is another thing. I will say that I think, you know, structurally, it's quite difficult for them to actually focus on problems and not just focus on, you know, fighting for power, because this is a completely new situation. You no, know, this is these are uncharted waters because the uh, uh, the opposition has never held a branch of government during Chavismo, and Chavismo has never not held all branches of government. What's more. There's never been a divided government under this constitution. And so there's all kinds of provisions and uh, things that have really never been used.
0: The first question in the press conference came from Brooke Unger of The Economist.
2: Do you think the opposition is going to go for a recall referendum? Um, and what effect do you think that will have on the political climate and on the, on the possibility for economic reform? Yeah, I, I think it's almost, uh, almost for sure that the opposition will go for a recall referendum. And uh, sort of the default uh, perspective on this, it comes from 2002-2004, in which this this caused two years of sort of political turmoil. And so that's what uh, people have tended to think is going to happen. There are other scenarios, and and I should warn you that this is is sort of, these are deductions from people, you know, uh, thinking about scenarios, not, I think, really empirical observations, but... People suggest that there is probably um, some considerable discontent with Maduro's leadership in in the the government, and that if if there was a recall referendum, um, you know, the government might not resist it as much as it did uh, in 2002-2004, because people might think, well, this is a good opportunity to, you know, put Maduro's presidency to, to the test. And if, if Maduro gets turned out, well, then we go to a new presidential election, perhaps they could put in a, a candidate that is more that more effectively represents Chavismo. I mean, that's, you know, again, these, these are sort of uh, um, deductions people have come up with. But all of this, the recall referendum, and all of the, the other possibilities of sort of political machinations and political strife in, in the coming months, of course, I think uh, make it difficult for economic uh, maneuvers. You know, get some of the necessary economic reforms. I mean, in in the best case scenario, this would be an opportunity for the government to push forward with, you know, unpopular economic measures and get the opposition to share some some political uh, costs of it. No, I I'm I'm a little I'm a little uh, you know uh, skeptical that that's what's going to happen just because because of this fact that this is uncharted waters and and who has what power is not very clear, and they get spent a lot of time testing each other out. And so it's a little bit hard to imagine, you know, them working together or or working positively on anything. Uh, But, you know, that would be the best scenario. But there could be, you know, considerable political conflict and strife and and gridlock that could further complicate, I think, economic policy.
0: Joshua Goodwin of the Associated Press had questions about a speech by General Vladimir Padrino Lopez, Venezuela's defense minister, after the elections, and the reaction of U.S. diplomats.
2: I'm just curious about two other sort of bid actors in this drama and what your perception was of uh, the military's role last night, if you thought Padrino Lopez's speech um, foreshadows uh, a role for them in in sort of this negotiation ahead. And and what, you know, what do you see the U.S. doing? are they, going to be, are they going to sort of back this sort of push for the jugular by some members of the opposition, or do you think they're going to try to play to bring the two sides together? The military, that's a really interesting question. No, I mean, uh, Padrino Lopez came out with some, some very extended but cryptic uh, comments yesterday, but a real sort of, you know, uh, cinematographic show of force there. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be watching to see if anybody has any idea what that was about. I mean, my very external reading of that is that, you know, this was a, a, a statement that, you know, all, everything is peaceful and it's going to remain that way. Uh, it was a real call for stability of the democratic system. You know, I'm not sure what was behind that. I, I'm going to be watching for it, but but that was a really conspicuous an extended appearance last night that uh, I think you know I, we should all be watching the um as far as the u s reaction, I think you know the u s after the sort of debacle with the uh, the sanctions last March from April through September had a very positive relationship with uh, had developed a very positive approach to Venezuela with tom shannon having sort of uh a direct line with the Venezuelan government making several trips down to Venezuela. And, you know, they were making some pretty solid progress towards exchanging ambassadors. That relationship sort of uh, got put on hold with the, um, with the sentencing of Leopoldo Lopez. You know, I mean, even John Kerry beforehand had said that this was very important to the United States. And, uh, you know, since then, I think they've been really waiting for these elections. And, and, you know, I think from, from their perspective, you know uh, the, the first thing they should focus focus on is the idea that this was you know this wasn't actually a democratic outcome that government recognized the result you know I would hope that the you know they would send a congratulations to the Venezuelan people and the government and and sort of reinitiate some of this uh this direct contact with Venezuela because I think I think. That contact has a pretty, is, a, is an anchor and has a, has an important role in Venezuela and sort of moderating. And it was during this period that the that the Venezuelan government actually finally, uh, you know, came up with a, a date for the uh, the elections. And of course, it's hard to know what was behind that.
0: The final question came from Mason Ray with the organization's International SOS and control risks.
2: One of the big fears that we uh, that a lot of people had following this, and obviously following 2014, was the uh, the chance of unrest breaking out, um, as we saw uh, just a few years ago. Uh, obviously, the chances of the opposition uh, getting out in the streets like they did before have obviously diminished. Um, but what do you think the chances are generally for unrest coming up within within the next few weeks and months? Are we out of the woods on that? And, and what are the chances that uh, this could even come from from pro-government groups, um, colectivos, and 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 such. You know, people always just uh, wondered about Chavismo losing an election, whether they're going going to accept it. You know, but this is not an election that they lost. You know, forty nine to fifty one or so. This is an election that they lost by, you know, I you know, haven't seen the final vote tallies, but it looks like 17 percent. Yeah, and that's that's a big, big uh, a loss, and indicates you know, Chavismo uh, has some real internal issues. So, yeah, I think that's relevant to, to that question.
0: Again, those were excerpts from a press conference conducted via long-distance conference call with David Smildy of Tulane University. Smildy is the editor of the Venezuela Politics and Human Rights blog of the Washington Office on Latin America. He's the author, co-author, editor, and co-editor of various books, including Venezuela's Bolivarian Democracy, SmileD discussed the recent elections from Caracas. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse this week. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including itunes facebook and flipboard you can also find us in the brazilian online game mini mundos to see the latin pulse archives of video programs on latin america you can check out link tv's website www.linktv all one word org and then slash latin dash pulse that's www.linktv.org slash latin dash pulse thanks for joining us this week on latin pulse for our entire team Associate Producer Natalie Odinger, and Technical Director Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. nos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the Global University, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program
2: is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions.